Hi again, everybody. Welcome to localjobnetwork.com radio and the podcast Management Decisions, where we take a look at topics related to management and the upper levels of organizations, looking to give you some tips and strategies when it comes to your role. Now, leadership is a topic we often get requests about, and today we're going to speak with someone who is sharing his thoughts and experience in a book called Step Up, Lead in Six Moments That Matter. Now, that book is by Henry Evans and Colm Foster. Joining LGN Radio today for this episode is Henry Evans. He is the founder and managing partner at Dynamic Results, LLC. Henry, thanks for coming on the show today. Jim, it's my pleasure. I enjoy the show. I, I appreciate that. And uh, I think it, it's a topic, as I said, everybody's constantly talking about, interested in learning about. And whenever we have a subject like this, the first question that we like to ask is, for you, how do you define leadership? I don't want to say things that you've probably heard a million times. It's a really big topic. So right. I will say something that was new to me when I first heard my co-author say it, Dr. Colin Foster. He would define leadership, if you asked him, as doing the right thing, even if it's not the easy thing. I like it. Is that sort of where you start then when you're talking about a lot of these conversational pieces in the book and sort of the perspective you take when you're writing and, and sharing your thoughts? Well, what happened for us was we we actually met at the Global Conference for Emotional Intelligence Assessors. So we were both teaching other assessors how to do assessment properly okay. and how to develop leaders in the emotional intelligence space. And I liked what he was saying and he liked what I was saying. So we became friends and then colleagues. And over the last five years, we've noticed that the emotional intelligence community, including us, has been leaving out a very important part of the story and we feel has even been doing assessment and development wrong Hmm. in very large part. We noticed that even though we were coaching everybody to never get angry at work, to never show frustration or, or any kind of negative emotions, that the highest performing leaders and the highest performing organizations we worked with used the full spectrum of, of emotion. And they had a very special way of using feelings like anger. So they were able to remain intelligent while angry. And that's why we called the first chapter, Get Angry, Not Stupid. Now, that is interesting. Of course, as you said, most times you're going to hear, you know, even keel, leave emotion out of it, uh, you know, very tactical way. Why this change in perspective for you two, or why did you notice that this is something that is necessary? Now, I know you said the the people who are highly successful, they utilize this, but why does it work? Why does it matter? For one thing, Tim, we can, any of us can lose a lot of authenticity if we are saying things to people in meetings, like, I am not angry. Stop saying I'm angry. I'm not angry. <laughs> We're not authentic in those moments. And right. Everyone knows it. So, it. so if you're in a leadership role, you're losing leadership credibility with each passing second. You're, you're denying your true feelings. The problem with feelings like anger is that they tend to cause us to say the things or do the things we will later regret. So when we started noticing that the highest performing organizations and people we worked with did use these feelings, Colin and Akin did five years of research on what that looks like. So he not only studied companies, he also studied the U.S. Marines. He studied the Jesuit order, some of the highest performing organizations in the world. And his research correlated perfectly with what we were observing in our client organizations, which is that there's a way to demonstrate these feelings that actually builds relationships. So one one idea that we give our readers in the book is to attack the idea, not the person. Hmm. So that would mean, Tim, if I didn't like an idea that you offered, I might, instead of saying, well, Tim, that's stupid, which is you know, just shy of calling you stupid and really damaging our relationship. I might say something like, Tim, I really like you and I like working with you. I'm really having trouble liking the idea that you just put (laughs) on the table, though. I don't see how it's going to make sense for us and how it's going to help our cash flow problem. Mm -hmm. So help me understand how it will. 
And I've really separated you from your idea. And we find that when that is done consistently, relationships are built. People appreciate your honesty, even if they're challenged over the idea. They don't feel personally attacked when you challenge them. I think that's just a great way to phrase it. As you said, you're, you're separating sort of the, uh, the two aspects there that are coming into play. I think, uh, I think right there is a great piece of advice. Now, when you're talking about that, though, is there ever the concern that, I don't know, the person hearing that message knows what you're doing or is it because you are being forthright? It, it doesn't come across that way. It doesn't come across as, as fake in any way. So we don't believe that you should fake anything. So we would never tell somebody to go in and, you know, manipulate their feelings okay. in order to, to drive action. However, anger can be a great catalyst for action when action is missing. So as an example, let's say you and I are on a work team and you've just gotten a call that we're going to get fired by our biggest client in three days. If my team, the team that I supervise, doesn't step up in a big way, mm-hmm. if I'm not taking that threat seriously, you might have to first go to your office and get upset about it. And then come into my office and get me upset about it so that I'll actually take action. And you can still attack the idea, but not the person. You can say, Henry, I know you care about the company and I know you care about our clients, but I'm having trouble seeing how that translates into how you're handling this situation today. Sure. I think you need to be mobilizing your team and you need to be getting into action, Henry. And I need to see you doing that now or the problem is going to get worse. And that emotion is contagious. I might get excited about it. You might even ask me a question like, Henry, how, do, how would you feel if it's a week from now and we've been fired and your team was responsible for it? And I said, well, I'd feel embarrassed. I said, okay, so now that you feel embarrassed and maybe frustrated, what are you going to do with those emotions? Because you can channel them towards fixing this right now. And you, you encourage me to use what I'm feeling as a fuel to get us out of a problem situation. Right. I love that. I love that approach completely. And I, I think the one question a lot of people have then is, What's the most difficult part of doing that? I mean, does it come down to a feeling of you're being rude or what do you think the biggest challenge is that maybe this doesn't fall on positive thinking when people, uh, when people hear this as a suggestion? So a few ways, and, and we've already seen, I mean, we've only released our research this year, but, but we've already seen it misused. So people who already had a habit of using anger unintelligently right. will read our book And then say, see, it's great to get angry. So you guys have been wrong about me all these years. It's great that I scream at you in every meeting. (laughs) That's not obviously what we're saying. Mm -hmm. What what we're saying is that anger needs to be used intelligently. But I'll tell you what a big pitfall is, particularly in this time of globalization. If you're on a cross-cultural team, and let's say you have, as one example, but there there are dozens, if you had somebody from, say, India or China in the Far East on your team, and you started getting angry in a meeting and showing that emotion, that has very different messaging in certain parts of the world than it does in, say, the U.S. So we have to be aware cross-culturally of who it is that we're dealing with Mm -hmm. and adjust our demeanor, our tone, and our approach for people that come from different backgrounds. Definitely a fair point there when it comes to the culture side of it. Another chapter you had in there that I... I enjoy the idea of it because we hear so much about positivity and and having that uh, you know sort of a sunshiny outlook when it comes to work or our projects or anything that we're doing. Talk a little bit about uh, the idea of leveraging pessimism and what that means and how that really should work when it comes to the workplace. Sure. So if you take people like Colm and I, so Colm and I have what is called by psychologists as a positive bias. We are the guys who were both former competitive martial artists, and we each went into every one of our competitive matches in our careers believing that we would win. Mm-hmm. That's what people with a positive bias do. Right. Same in business. 
I'm a five-time CEO, and each time somebody said, well, you, your company will never succeed at this or never succeed at that, that just made me hungry. It made me want to work harder. The problem with optimism, so one of the problems that somebody like me brings to a team, well, first the plus, right? The plus is that my emotions are contagious too. So I might get a team excited. I might get them feeling positive. Right. But one thing optimism does is it blinds us to challenges and it blinds us to obstacles. Hmm. So we actually need, and this is what we say in the book, people like me need at least one pessimist on our team who's going to go, Henry, I appreciate your enthusiasm. I just want to remind you the last time we approached a problem like that, we lost 10% market share on the West Coast. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because I don't think the message is funny. I just, I think the, the way you phrase that, I, it was amusing to me because I can completely see that happening. You know, I, we love your energy, but let's, let's look at this from another tact. I just, I just, I, I laughed because I thought it was, it, it sounded great. I'm glad you laughed. And laughing would be a great reaction because one of the other things we say in the book is that pessimists are usually underappreciated and undervalued. And if you made them feel appreciated and valued, they would continue to offer these criticisms. But we also, the chapter, I, we just had a client say that this one chapter should have been two books because the chapter <laughs> split into, into two parts. The first part is about encouraging and appreciating your pessimists. The second part of the chapter is about how you manage them because you do want to encourage them to speak. But you don't want to encourage them to kill your culture. So a couple of ways we offer to manage them. One is don't promote them. Don't, don't put pessimists in charge of a team because hmm. nobody wants to be led into battle by somebody telling them we're going to die on the battlefield. Right, right. right. Another thing we do is we ask that you make operating agreements with your pessimists and say, you know, let's say that I'm one of your pessimists. You might say, Henry, I really want you to continue to speak up in meetings and I want you to continue to voice your concerns once. <laughs> so whenever you have a concern, I want you to state it one time in a concise, powerful way, get the attention of the room. And then I want you to, to let us start working on how we're going to approach that problem. I don't want you to lead us into a redundant dialogue about that problem. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, especially because, again, you know, we read and research a lot of items as well, and we talk with a lot of guests, and not that everybody has the same feeling, but there's often this talk of trying to treat people similarly and equally. You're definitely talking about a very different approach for possibly one person because of their viewpoint. Do you see any issues with that arising? No, I mean, you have to acknowledge the different and leverage the different personalities and capabilities in the room. It, leveraging different personality types as a leader is not different than leveraging different skill sets, right? You wouldn't take somebody who is three foot five and ask them to slam dunk a basketball on a regulation net. Right. Good it point. just wouldn't make sense. I am a stutterer. I'm a, I'm a childhood chronic stutterer and I have male pattern baldness. So if you want somebody to give a keynote who will never stutter with a full head of hair, don't send Henry. <laughs> I'm not your guy. If you don't mind a little bit of stuttering, you know, just like a little salt on your steak, if you don't mind a little bit of that and you don't mind a shiny head, send me in. But what we're seeing in the book, Tim, is that this idea that leadership should be defined by title we think is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. There's no research to support that. We all know there are some bad leaders out there. And we also know that there are people who are not in the formal role, but are much bigger influencers than the people who are in the formal role. So we're saying that you can lead from anywhere on the organizational chart. If you understand the six moments where leadership is required, how to identify them and what to do in those moments. And that's what Dr. Foster and I illustrate in the book. Well, I, I've enjoyed talking about this because I think, as you said, it, we're not really talking about the similar strategies and, and key points that a lot of people bring up. And I appreciate sort of this different look. And of course, again, for people who are interested in a lot of the details, the book is called Step Up, Lead in Six Moments That Matter. 
Henry, how about uh, something else from from the book or, or a nice uh, point that you would like to talk about that you think really, I don't know, identifies a little bit of how you're looking at things and how this book tries to get people to change their perspective a little bit? Sure. Well, we've had a lot of feedback now, right? In the in the first month and a half, we've we've hit the Amazon top ten, and and we've been covered by Inc. and Forbes and a lot of major media. Our clients have come back to us because not all of our clients had seen this content, and they really like what we're calling our conclusion. Although one of our clients criticized us and said that should have been called Chapter Seven because it, it's a whole chapter, but it, it's about developing something that we call emotional safety. Hmm. for other people. Okay. And what we're correlating is even if you don't love people and don't want to make the workplace great, let's say you're like Donald Trump and all you care about is money, you don't care at all about people, you still should create emotional safety because when people feel safe talking to you about bad news, they continue to do it. They continue to come to you and tell you what's really going on with you as a leader or with the organization. If you have not made it safe for people to come and talk to you, and they get to be the judge of whether you've done that or not, you continue to have the authority or responsibility for whatever your job is, but you're making decisions without real-time information, which in our mind makes you very dangerous Hmm. to the organization. Where does reverse momentum come into play with all this? Well, we notice in, in meetings, and I don't know, Tim, you may, you may notice this too. I, I would imagine most of your listeners do. When you're in a meeting and you fall, the people in the meeting fall into a death spiral of redundancy where, let's take the global economy. People are in a room saying, well, we're never going to hit our goals because of the global economy. Yeah, but the global economy, these goals are too aggressive and, and we can't do it. Yeah, you know, everyone else is losing money. How come corporate thinks that we can make money? The point may be valid. But the discussion is, is extremely expensive in terms of people's energy and even payroll to mm. have people continue to, to discuss this one thing. Whoever in the room can get that group of people to reverse the momentum of their dialogue towards a solution or towards another discussion that's more productive, we think is the leader in that interaction. It may not be the formal leader, right? but it's the person who says, Tim, I think you've made your point. The economy is really bad. What are we going to do to make money in this bad economy? Or what are we going to do to increase employee engagement while we're not able to offer raises, as an example? Right. Is there ever a concern there that somebody's stepping on another's toes in that scenario, or maybe they're, you know, stepping out of line, so to speak, because they are they're really swimming against, you know, swimming against the current, so to speak. That's a great question. So there, sometimes it requires a lot of finesse and a lot of emotional intelligence, and it, it sometimes requires you to speak to how people are feeling before you actually reverse that momentum. So I might say something like, Tim, I can hear that you're worried about the economy and the impact it's having on us and even the impact it's going to have on us because it can be limiting for us in 2014. I share the same fears. So I have the same fears you have. I'm also concerned that if we continue to talk about our fears, we're not going to figure out how to navigate this bad economy. Hmm. So when do you think would be a good time for us to start talking about that? You know, so it's, it's demonstrating empathy and it's, and it's sharing an understanding of how you feel before I start pushing for action. Overall, I mean, obviously you guys with this book are trying to, as I've said a couple of times, maybe change the perspective on some things. Do you see emotional intelligence in general still being underutilized, overlooked, um, you know, maybe being shunned a little bit in the workplace? Do you see a transition? What, what's sort of your take from your experience and people maybe you've spoken with? I would say that there are two parts to that answer. One part would be, 
if you look at emotional intelligence in general, there are certainly some people who are resistant to the concept of feelings being in the workplace. Right. But we think it's unintelligent to suggest that feelings are not in the workplace. As a matter of fact, Dr. Foster taught me something really cool. He said, do you know how to deal with an executive who says, I don't let my feelings interfere with my, my work? Uh, and I said, no, you know, actually, I've run into some of those people over, over all these years as a consultant. I've never known how to handle them. He said, just repeat a few times that they do let their emotions get in the way of their work. <laughs> and when you say it enough times, they'll get upset with you for saying it. And you can say, how about now? I like it. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so there is, I mean, some stereotypes exist for a reason. I would say to, to make a huge generalization. North American males, okay, so take guys from the U.S., a lot of times they will initially be resistant to the concept of emotional intelligence because it has the word emotional in it. So we've learned to call it relationship management, hmm. which, okay. which will bring anybody into the conversation. Everybody wants to be able to manage their relationships effectively. It's the same science. The other thing I would say is that if people are resistant, uh, and there's certainly a lot of curiosity around chapter one. There is sometimes initially resistant to this idea that you can allow feelings like frustration and anger in the workplace, but we've been able to prove not just through research, but through the work we do when we train companies in this methodology okay. that their meetings become more productive. You know, Patrick Lencioni, who wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team mm -hmm. in Death by Meeting, one of the things he wrote in Death by Meeting that we really appreciate is that meetings are like movies. They should have drama. Hmm. So there should be something interesting happening in a meeting that gets people engaged. And sometimes that is an emotion that attracts attention and attracts action like frustration. Right. I'm going to have to keep that in mind for the next uh, next team meeting we have and then test test the waters a little bit there because I think that is a an interesting thought, especially because I'm sure a lot of people listening, you get into meetings and as you talked about, there's this cycle to it. Sometimes there's just a, a routine that is really unemotional and, and boring in a lot of ways. So I will blame you if I get in trouble for that, by the way. <laughs> No, that's funny. We always say we always say to the to, to the people we work with in companies, that feel free to try this at home. Just don't use our names. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. Uh, we are getting low on time. I really do appreciate the conversation. I think it's a fascinating look at you know, emotional intelligence. Yes, that's sort of the the general umbrella there. But some of the details you've talked about and. Again, for anyone who's interested, the book is Step Up, Lead in Six Moments That Matter. Uh, Henry, as we look to wrap up here, we always like to give our guests the opportunity to give our listeners a takeaway, something that they can grasp onto um, based on the conversation we've had today. What would you offer up? Again, take it anywhere you like, but something that you think our listeners would really be able to grab onto as they walk away from this discussion. I would say that the next time you find yourself getting frustrated with someone at work because of their behavior or because of their idea, replace your judgment about them or about their idea with curiosity and ask just a couple of questions to understand why they are coming from the place they are coming from. So I might say something like, I see you're frustrated. And instead of shooting you down for being frustrated, I might say, tell me more about why you're feeling frustrated. And sometimes that little bit of interest goes a long way in terms of diffusing a volatile situation. I think that's a great, great way to wrap things up here in our, again, our conversation. We will wrap up this edition of Management Decisions as we've been looking into leading when it matters most. Our expert guest today has been Henry Evans. He's the founder and managing partner at Dynamic Results, LLC. He's also an author with Colm Foster of the book, Step Up, Lead in Six Moments That Matter. 
hopefully, you know, people listening out there will appreciate the points you brought up and, and check out some more details of that book. Henry, thanks again for coming on the show. We do appreciate your insight. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. And of course, we always want to hear from you, the listener, as well. So just shoot us an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for any of our podcasts. You can also hook up with us on Twitter at the LJN and send us your comments and questions there as well. We'll be happy to oblige. For everyone here at LJN Radio, I'm your host, Tim Muma. We'll talk to you later.